Welcome to Studs, I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Season six of Studs has been an unmitigated joy. I've been relishing the opportunity to dive into the working lives of my comrades in arms in education. Every episode, and I do mean every episode, has been a bona fide source of inspiration for me. And today's episode is no exception to that. If you've been digging on season six of Studs, if you support the mission of the program, I got an easy way for you to show your support. Just head on over to patreon.com studs. You'll find the link in the show notes. I'd be happy to reward you for a little bit of support. You can get a little something for a wee donation. And if you'd be so kind, I hope you'll grant me just a short minute to thank a new Studs patron, the distinguished McKinley Morganfield. That's right, McKinley Morganfield. It's a fantastic name. It's a name with which I am familiar as well. And so either A or B. A, there's a dude out there with the splendorific name of McKinley Morganfield. Or, equally likely, B, someone out there, well, they got my number. Do y'all know who McKinley Morganfield is? Some of you out there surely must. McKinley Morganfield is indeed the birth name of the father of Chicago blues, Muddy Waters. So I shot a quick email out to McKinley Morganfield to thank them for their support of the podcast. I don't know who they are. I didn't hear back. So I'm going to throw caution to the wind. And I'm going to say something that brings me great joy to say. And McKinley Morganfield, if you're out there and you're listening, and McKinley Morganfield is your legit name... Please grant me the grace, because it just brings me such joy to say this. This episode of Studs is brought to you by Muddy Waters. Thanks for your support, McKinley Morganfield. And my dear listeners, if you're not in a position to patronize this project, we are all good. I'm grateful that you're here. I'm honored that you tune in. And I know you're going to love this episode of Studs which features me in conversation with Dr. Barrett Abert. Barrett is a professor of political science at Bard College Berlin, who specializes in European law with a focus on gender equality, European integration, and theories of justice. So if you know me, it must seem immediately evident to you why I was so keen to get Barrett on the podcast. But... My friends, as is so often the case, what's immediately evident obfuscates intention. It turns out that despite my deeply rooted curiosity about her contributions to the field of political science, Barrett and I instead explore her other job as the vice president of programs at the American Academy in Berlin. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the American Academy Berlin, 
It is, according to the leading German news weekly Der Spiegel, quote, the world's most important center for American intellectual life outside the United States. And I believe it. Barrett and I discuss how she and her colleagues at the Academy foster a robust transatlantic marketplace of ideas. We carefully consider what makes the American Academy events feel so special, and we dive into why creating cultural and intellectual networks is so fun for her. Barrett claims to have the best job in Berlin. She loves what she does. I love what she does, too. Join us in conversation, and you'll see why. Barrett Abert, welcome to Studs. Thanks for being here. How do you describe what you do? Thank you, Daniel. First of all, thanks a lot for the opportunity to talk to you and to be able to give you more insight about my work. Um, so my job is um, I'm the vice president of programs at the American Academy in Berlin. And in my role, I'm responsible for the institution's programming, the academic outreach, the academic networking of the fellows, but also their cultural networking, as well as fundraising in the classical sense. But at the American Academy, it's quite a special fundraising. So this is, in a nutshell, what I do. Thanks. And I'm really looking forward to diving into all those different plates that you spin. But before we do, would you be so kind as to walk us along your professional path to the American Academy? Yes, of course. Thank you. So um, I started at the Academy about 13 years ago as a press intern. And this was supposed to be a six-month undertaking. Um, I actually was thinking about pursuing my PhD at a university. And um, when I actually spent those six months at the American Academy, the time turned out to be so great. And by chance, the back then executive director asked me if I wanted to stay. So I decided, okay, I stay. I was in the perfect academic environment. I wanted to pursue my PhD. He gave me the opportunity to do so. And by being at the American Academy, I was actually able to talk to the people I was writing about. And at the same time, I was able to gain practical experience in the field. And I got a huge insight, and I'm still getting a huge insight pretty much every day, about the American academic and cultural landscape, um, which, I, which I really enjoy and which brings me back to work every day, every hour, <laughs> um, and, and which is really um, the best part about my work. So he, is, he asked me if I wanted to stay and take a permanent job in, um, in the development department. Uh, of course, when you come with a university education in political science and European law, you think like, oh God, fundraising. No, <laughs> this is exactly not what I was planning to do. But as I told you before, um, at the Academy, fundraising is really something special. So first thing I told him, uh, I have no idea what development is about, but I will do it nonetheless. <laughs> so he said, okay, I think uh, he sort of liked the approach. This also, of course, gave him a lot of freedom uh, to design the whole development world uh, at the Academy in a very special way. And this is um, what we've done together. So um, it's not the mass fundraising that you would imagine. I'm not uh, standing in the street and, and collect money or something like that. It's really, we're really trying to create partnerships with the funders. The funders are 
extremely, extremely interested in the work of the academy. And this made the job somewhat different from a traditional fundraising, mass fundraising job. So I was all, always included in program development from the beginning, thinking about new topics the academy could approach. Um, I had to monitor um, what was going on in the United States, because, of course, uh, the American Academy wants to be reflective of the discourse in the United States. Fundraising wasn't so far easy, as I basically had to tell everyone what I was doing and convince them that this is great. And I think when one is convinced about his or her work, this is really an easy job and a fun job. And I'm really looking forward to getting into like how you became so convinced of the work and I'm sure we're going to hear about the fun sides of it, but maybe we might put a pin in this, if only for a moment. The American Academy is this really special place, and it has a unique and, in my imagination at least, beautiful history. But I'm afraid that many, if not most, of our listeners might not even be aware of the Academy. So can you do me a favor and do our listeners a favor and just describe the mission Mm -hmm. of the American Academy? What are we trying to do there? Okay. If you look on the American Academy's webpage, and I will uh, read the first sentence or the first two sentences now, it says, The American Academy in Berlin was founded in 1994 at the initiative of Richard Horbach, then ambassador to Germany. Independent, nonpartisan, and privately funded, the American Academy in Berlin is committed to sustaining and enhancing the long-term intellectual, cultural, and political ties between Germany and the United States. So that's uh, the official mission. For me, the Academy uh, is, of course, exactly that. But it was always this universe of ideas showing what is possible in the United States. And the American Academy does this basically with three core programs, one of which is the fellowship program, um, which is really at the heart of everything that the Academy does. And with the fellowship program, it brings about 25 American scholars, academics, artists, authors to Berlin for the brief period of four to five months. It really feels brief when we're working together with the fellows. And each fellow has to deliver one public lecture. Before a lecture, usually there is a dinner with an expert crowd of about 30 to 40 people and then we open up to the public and uh, opening up to the public in pre-pandemic days actually meant uh, a lecture with about 100 to 120 participants in the audience. Now most of the uh, cultural institutions have learned from the pandemic and so far as we have um, a Zoom component and so we're also um, opening up online. This gives us several hundred participants that that join our lectures. This is the traditional public aspect of a fellowship that a a fellow is pursuing. In addition to that, fellows are usually pursuing a project. They apply um, at the American Academy with a certain project that they then pursue in Berlin. And these can be anything from writing fiction, from pursuing an academic project, from working on a painting. And this, of course, comes with very different tasks for my team then. And we work together with, uh, with the fellows for a certain outreach here in Berlin or not. There are fellows um, who simply prefer to be um, left alone and pursue their project. So 
the academy accommodates the fellows um, on its premises. In, in the villa, there, there are two floors with apartments where um, the fellows are housed. In addition to that, there are two houses on the grounds where families with uh, children can live. So this was one aspect of making the fellowship program younger. If we aimed for for younger scholars to to come to the academy, we we had to we had to adjust uh, the accommodation, and the result was okay. Family housing is possible, and so here we are. And this was was an aspect of diversifying uh, the fellowship program. The second component is what we call distinguished visitors. This is what I would describe as a fellowship very very condensed with regard to its time. Distinguished visitors usually stay at the academy for two days to about four weeks. They have also have the same public component, a lecture and a dinner, and then we share them with the world. And of course, several or a few weeks do not really allow for, for the same relaxation when it comes to scheduling as with a fellow who has, who has close to five months. A distinguished visitor then has a very, very intense schedule from morning to the evening. Since they come from, as the fellows, from all kinds of disciplines, but also from the practical work um, there, or former politicians, we also have artists, distinguished visitors, um, who simply cannot leave their studio for such a long time. For example, we had um, Carrie James Marshall for about uh, three weeks at the Academy. He went out and about, got connected to museums, but also, and this is uh, a very very gratifying aspect of my work with the American Academy. He also um, interacted with students. So we're trying um, not only to have this public component lecture and then have everyone come to the Academy, but we're also going out there and we're trying to re reach the younger audience. And um, Carrie was, a, was perfect for that. Uh, he held a masterclass at the, at the American Academy. We invited about 20, 25-ish students. And they closely work together with him talking about his own work. This can be a life-changing experience. And then in addition to that, uh, both fellows and distinguished visitors, if they are up to it and ready for it, organize smaller conferences and seminars at the Academy where we really try to produce intellectual output um, that we share on our website, on our newsletter. One of the most prominent features in that regard is what we call the Richard Holbrook Forum that regularly meets with about um, 15 participants and they then deliberate behind closed doors. At the end, there's usually also a public event, but what is being deliberated then is developed in short essays, uh, short policy papers and, and shared with the world. So American education in general and higher education in particular is like so much else in America a source of great debate and division. I know like a, a recent poll found that about half of Americans are satisfied with their K through 12 system. Other studies have shown that a third of adults are satisfied with higher education. Mm -hmm. Yet both you and I are devoting much of our professional lives to promoting American education and American discourse more broadly. I wonder what it is about American education that attracts you so much that you've devoted much of your professional life to sharing it in a non-American context. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think the blunt answer would be size matters. 
And I'm saying that because uh, the United States is simply bigger than Germany. Because of that, there are so many ideas out there and there is so much creativity. Also, when it comes to the university landscape, the space for ideas is simply bigger. So much more is already possible. And I think what makes it so special to work for the academy here in Berlin is that I can make all these kinds of thoughts and ideas available for a German public. This is not to say that the, that the American university system per se is better or worse than the German one. The variety of courses that American students can take is in general much, much higher than in Germany and it's less specified from the beginning. And this is a, this is a trade of American university education that follows pretty much also in the, in the higher levels of an academic career. And so there, there are simply topics that we can bring to Germany via the American Academy that probably people wouldn't have thought about. Plus this huge fiction and visual artistic world that is simply possible in the United States. Simply the fact that, um, that artists also teach at universities. I mean, we have, we have the same in Germany as well, but I, I would say it's, it's slightly more common in the United States. And um, the, the interaction between the public and the academic world seems to be a bit more developed than in Germany. This is something that I find very special. It's um, the university professors are very reachable in the States. And as I said, the variety and breadth of ideas, the more the merrier, and this can only help here. If I could be so bold, I want to put a thought in your head and tell me if it fits with your broader paradigm. As someone who teaches at a German-American school, Sometimes I wonder if there is a certain optimism at the core of the American education project that in some substantial way defines the whole American education mission. And it might be a foolish optimism. You know, optimism isn't always prudent nor wise. But I wonder if there's something about optimism or hope in American education that makes it somehow more appealing? Well, optimism is um, certainly one aspect of the American educational attitude, probably the attitude in general. There is always, um, I think, what we know as the can-do attitude of the United States. On the other hand, um, one could also say there is a certain pressure. There is more pressure to um, to achieve something, there is uh, less of a social net. So um, I wouldn't necessarily say that a German education per se is less optimistic. I was totally optimistic when I started my university education here in Germany, and <laughs> I was still optimistic <laughs> when I ended it. <laughs> so <laughs> this... <laughs> Uh, the, the optimism um, aspect was nothing that was uh, in, in somehow affected by, by my having attended a German university and, and later a university in Vienna. There were more optimistic and less optimistic students. But what certainly comes with this aspect of optimism is the possibilities that are available for students afterwards. I don't know. I think I, I, I would be careful. There's also in the United States, I think one has to 
distinguish very carefully between um, private universities and public universities. There is a difference. And of course, the funds that are available for university education in the United States are much higher than in Germany. Nonetheless, I would not say, or I would never generalize and say um, that uh, Americans are in, are in general more optimistic than Germans. I would be careful. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that's decidedly true. So we were talking a moment ago about the mission of the Academy, and you contribute to this mission in several ways, uh, perhaps most notably through overseeing programs and through developing relationships with supporters. Maybe we could dive into both of those in turn, and maybe we could start here. So the American Academy offers a, a robust and, let's say, intriguing palette of programs and events Barrett, I'll tell you, all of the events that I've attended, all the lectures, the forums, the discussions, the readings, they have all, each and every one of them, felt genuinely special. Like it actually feels like an event every time. There's always like an energy to, to the evening. Thank you. You do something, you and your team, but I'd imagine it has a lot to do with you. <laughs> you do something to make the speakers and the audience feel vibrant and engaged at 7 p.m. after a long work day, often in the throes of a cold, dark Berlin winter. <laughs> so I guess my question, blunt as it may be, is how do you do that? Like, what's that process of making the lecture evenings come alive? I think that these were very kind words, but it's by far not only me. I think the most important and decisive aspect about um, these lectures being that kind of successes are the fellows. I always say quality, quality, quality. Um, they, the, the fellows just bring the best of American thought into Berlin, and this is already, as we would say in German, das halbe Rezept. So we're already at 50% there with what they are thinking about and what they are presenting. The other 49% is probably my team and this other 1% is me. I have a great team. I have great colleagues at the American Academy um, who support me. And uh, this is not only the program and development teams, this is all the other teams that work with us in um, actually making an event what it in the end is. So we start quite early. Typically, as I said before, the fellows are being selected via an independent selection committee. And then we get the names and we already start the conversations with the fellows before they actually arrive in Berlin. So with this first phone or Zoom call, we identify their priorities for the fellowship. And for us, this is a first indication of how we would like to design this evening. Sometimes fellows look, look for publishers, other fellows look for, um, I don't know, other artistic contacts. And depending on what they say, this is the first indication for us to draft a, an invitation list for a dinner. Then, of course, we would like to invite the donors um, who contributed to the fellowship or to the academy in general. So this is one aspect of the event in the evening is creating this dinner list, this expert li list, and carving out the smaller dinner group. 
And in addition to that, um, there is all the kind of technical setup. Um, of course, now it comes with establishing the Zoom links, uh, sending out uh, the newsletter. Um, people can then register online for the events, um, even in a step before drafting everything. So this means drafting an invitation, drafting an RSVP sheet, um, emailing with the participants, emailing with the fellow defining the topic of the uh, of the lecture um, a, a small abstract of the lecture this is being done in close coordination with the fellow and the team sometimes um, press is invited um, the, the press outreach we're doing this together with a communications team here at the academy and then together with another colleague we're thinking about the menu about the setup um, in very many cases uh, fellows select a meal that is tied to their topic. So when we had, for example, a talk about the shared economy, we all had to share the schnitzel that was in the middle of the table. <laughs> um, so there is always <laughs> there is always a link here. The food, the whole program, everything has to be checked and rechecked and rechecked with everyone involved. So um, there is a lot of coordination work involved. Yeah. It all actually kind of sounds overwhelming. And if any of the listeners to this hair podcast have been to one of these events, they all seem to be so smooth and so inviting. There must be such attention paid to detail by you and by your team. It must be quite a rush, actually, as you get pretty close to it, even though you've been doing it for a while. I wonder if you still get the, the rush in the hours leading up to an event or a lecture? I get it every time. <laughs> and um, every time when I'm introducing a fellow or talk about a fellow's work or talk in public, I'm always nervous. Yeah, This will, I think, never, never, ever vanish, which is good. And I'm not the only one in that regard. I think we're all a bit nervous. And I think this just shows that people are taking their jobs seriously. Um, so it's uh, nervousness is, is, is part of it and also makes the whole job somehow exciting. At the same time, though, when an event has started or when guests arrive, it, it, it feels very familiar. Having people come out to Wannsee, yes, involves a certain distance involves a certain travel by train or by car but once people are out there this comes with a relaxation you're suddenly out there you see the lake you have a nice atmosphere you're totally in intellectual mood you want to think about the topic and i think it's the same for us every evening the team learns something new i learn something new and this also in a way calms down. I sometimes feel as if, if I'm working in a mini university where the faculty changes every six months. Yeah. So um, there is the administrative part of it, yes, which comes with a certain rush, but there is also the intellectual part of it, which sort of, yeah, calms down. And um, it, in the end, it, it all comes together. Then, of course, if you've been out at the academy, you know that at the end, after an event is over, there is also the famous reception. And when the weather is still nice, we can go out on the terrace. So this is, at the latest at that moment, I think everyone is relaxing. <laughs> yeah. And for those who haven't been, either because 
they haven't followed their better judgment or because they're not living in Berlin. <laughs> I have to confirm what you're saying, that it the villa is absolutely gorgeous. The space is really special and it really seems to bring people together. It's really like, you know, like a destination wedding almost where like when everyone finally gets there, everyone feels like they've arrived, right? And then- yeah. When the ceremony is over, which in this analogy is the lecture afterwards, there's like a bona fide sense of camaraderie. People from different walks of life, people from different cultures and countries seem to come together. Yes. And, you know, part of the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast here is because I, I honestly believe that so much of what happens at the Academy is super special and it really brings people together. And this, of course, is my season about education and educators. And I think that the Academy plays a real neat role in the marketplace of ideas and promoting education. Yes. And so if, and so I should say to my dear listeners, if you're in <laughs> Berlin and you haven't made it to the Academy, um, you should go. It's pretty awesome. I, Barrett, I want to maybe get a little specific with you. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe share this story of an academy lecture or event that really means a lot to you? And then tell the story of how it came to be. That is an excellent question. It's also a very personal question, actually. And um, I, when I'm not at the academy, my, my interest is in the European Union, European Union integration, and why the European Union matters. So one of my events that meant a lot to me was actually when Philip Schmitter, one of the thinkers of the European Union, European Union integration and the theory of functionalism, was scheduled to give a talk. Then came the pandemic and the talk had to happen online. And at first I thought, uh, what a pity he cannot travel. Uh, wanted to have him over. The online talk was a huge success in the end. And um, he was someone who basically lived through this whole period of European integration since the 1960s, has seen how this interplayed with transatlantic relations. So um, it, was a, it was a perfect lecture for the American Academy. And he um, very warmly pointed out all these positive aspects that a lot of people have already forgotten about it. All the positive aspects that European Union integration brought to every citizen and um, the free travel um, even affects our fellows. You know, they, they are here in Berlin and uh, within one hour, no passport control, um, one hour flight, they're in Italy. They don't have to change money. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the one big continent here. And that was personally for me a very, very important event. Yeah. I have to maybe ask the contrasting question. Mm -hmm. And of course, I wouldn't want you to you know, name names, but <laughs> could you maybe talk about an event or a lecture that didn't quite reach the hopes that you had for it and give me the autopsy report? <laughs> And I should say, I ask you because it seems to me that so many pieces of the puzzle have to come together in order to make for these magnificent events and lectures that 
it seems likely that sometimes not all the pieces come together. And maybe most people there, they still had a great time and they don't notice, but you look back on that event and it was a learning experience for you. I mean, there are always events where something or some aspect doesn't really work. It's probably, um, probably our participants don't really see that. Um, we see it, of course. Um, I have my difficulties in saying, oh, there was this one event that didn't really play out because of the speaker or because of the topic. That, that is most of the time it's more an organizational aspect. And I tell you why. Um, I think, that, as I said before, whether something is really successful or not, or whether, whether something resonates, is highly, highly dependent on one's personal interests. What might be a known speaker for one community might be someone other people have not heard of before. Uh, so to generalize here about success or not is, is, ve is very difficult, I think. And this is also why the Academy in general, I think, does such a good job in addressing all these various kinds of disciplines, arts, academia, literature. So for me to answer this question with like one event is extremely difficult. I have a funny story, though, to tell. And this was when um, my earlier days at the Academy, I was asked to organize an event that involved a very high level speaker i won't name names now okay and i was in total complete misunderstanding with my boss about the date i thought he had already picked a date but in his mind he hadn't <laughs> oh no and um i was totally activist and just sent out all the invitations no. <laughs> and um yeah my boss was then like hmm Something went wrong here, and uh, thank God, I mean, we then uh, figured everything out and in the end could, could make the date, but uh, I, I basically did that without really asking anyone or coordinating, and, but in the end, everything went, went fine, but this was, as I said, more an organization, organizational matter and had nothing to do with the speaker, so yeah. Would you be willing to try to describe for me the type of vibe or the type of feel that you're trying to create? Because there really is something about the way it feels on those evenings. And I know that there's a lot of teamwork that goes into to making it feel just so. Perhaps you're going to be humble and say that it's so much about the speaker themselves, the lecturer themselves. And I know that there's a lot of truth to that. But I also think that your team goes to great lengths to create a certain ambience. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I think, of course, the most important aspect is um, intellectual engagement, but intellectual engagement in a setting that is not necessarily pushing or pressing. This is why we have the dinners before, so that everyone is tired. <laughs> Works every time. So uh, that, that is already um, a relaxing atmosphere. People exchange ideas over dinner and then go into the lecture where they pretty much know who is in the room with them. Right. They know each other. In intensity, curiosity usually comes with our audience, but this is also something that we, of course, uh, try to create and engage people with. Um, we do not want to be the ivory tower that doesn't really let anyone in at anything. I think this is, uh, this is really important, and this is also in terms of 
my broader educational vision very important. Everyone can say anything. Um, so there is, uh, and, and I think people feel that, and with the certain ease and friendship that develops between the people who who come to the academy, this is by now sort of a given. And I think also there is, um, I think we talked about this a little bit before, the fact that it's not necessarily in the city center, that we're in this calm atmosphere um, and that people just get out of their daily routine helps a lot in creating the atmosphere we would like to create. And then we have colleagues in the um, operations team. They are mainly responsible for setting everything up for both dinner and lecture. And everything is being done with an intense amount of uh, attention to detail. And this makes the academy special, I think. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of bright people, very deeply committed people who are part of your team and you're spot on. There seems to be an attention to detail. Hey, you've mentioned this once or twice and maybe now is a good time to dive into it. Mm-hmm. It seems like part of your work is about creating networks for fellows and for visitors. And we know that networking, so to speak, can be construed as maybe like smarmy or shallow or something. But networking is essential to creating academic discourse, Mm -hmm. the very type of academic discourse that's at the heart of the Academy's mission. How would you describe your approach to cultivating networks for Academy fellows and distinguished visitors? It's a pretty broad approach in addition to what we do publicly with our evening talks um, there is a lot going on behind the scenes for example the fellows i mean they are they come to germany to engage with their academic counterparts so we we connect them with the people who are here in Berlin or also in Germany. And this connection can be, this can be pretty much anything. Some go to a university and teach a seminar. Others meet um, their respective experts one-on-one or go for a walk and then meet up again. So we would start with the initial relationship building and then the fellow would take it from there. Other forms of networking include um, small, smaller, closed events that we do at the academy. For example, something that we do for our fellows are what we call informal evenings, where we would invite artists or musicians or any, any people of interest for our fellows, and they would have dinner with the fellows, and then they all meet together in our library at the academy and just informally talk about anything in most cases about the person's work. This happens on a pretty regular basis. This is very, very important. The networking, we don't want to overburden any one of our fellows with networking. It really, we cater it to their special interests. And most of the time, this really also works. It it works out with what we have in mind, what the fellows have in mind, and also what um, I want to say our audience slash participants have in mind. And in addition to that, there is, of course, the aspect of um, networking for development. But this is, again, the special aspect of, of the American Academy. It's not necessarily mass development. Donors are included in what we do. They are included in our programming. 
sometimes they meet one-on-one with a fellow. So being out there is, is of course, a lot of, a lot of my work. Uh, sometimes I would also include the fellows. For example, during gallery week or gallery weekend, when I'm out and about and uh, in various galleries, I would just take interested fellows with me. This happens naturally. It's not this official networking character where you set up formal Zoom calls or formal meetings. It's uh, it's basically yeah, <laughs> yeah, having a fun time together. <laughs> yeah, I think it seems to me that there's a lot of that happening. Mm-hmm. Before we get on to the development piece, I guess, so you have very bright people, professionally engaged artists and or academics. And you or one of your team members you have the sense that they should really meet person A or B or C. Also, someone who's bright and professionally engaged, they're on the cutting edge, they've got ideas. And you want to bring them together for a conversation. You think these people should break bread or uncork a bottle of wine or something. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you make that connection do you tend to write an email and copy them both in do you try to talk the other person up or are people usually already aware of sort of to to whom they might be connected like maybe a thought from you if you'd be willing about the process of connecting your fellows and your distinguished visitors to the right people and making that like a really positive and welcoming experience for all parties? It depends on the level I know the person the fellow would like to meet. When I know the person very well, it's usually I would simply pick up my phone, say, hey, we have a fellow here. He or she is interested in meeting you. Don't you want to invite us for dinner? (laughs) And usually the answer is yes. Yeah. And we figure out the date and that's it. Um, Of course, um, the fellowship program and also the distinguished visitors come with the potential of creating new audiences and networks for the American Academy. So also people that we don't know. In that case, um, I would usually send an email or sometimes even a letter explaining what the Academy does and if a person is interested in meeting the respective fellow. And then I would attach uh, additional information um, material of the American Academy to that so that um, the person who we would like to invite or bring together with the fellow knows more about the context and knows what he or she might get into there. That's, uh, I think these would be roughly the three kinds of ways of how I would, would approach this. Another, perhaps fourth way, um, would be an invitation to the to the event of the fellow. A lot of relationship building happens there right at the academy. Yeah. I have to confess to you, Barrett, that you're speaking with someone here who really takes a lot of joy out of connecting people to one another. I sense that you really love it as well, eh? Absolutely. It's um, and it's it's something where I can learn it. Every time uh, I bring people together and um, even uh, drink wine while bringing people together um, <laughs> and eat and, uh, and learn. It's, it's perfect. <laughs> Please and thank you. Connecting people, drinking wine and learning. It's <laughs> yeah, I always say I have one of the best jobs in town, if not in the country. 
Yeah. So Barrett, in addition to like the joyous work of connecting people who may be of like mind or might have similar interests and passions, you're also seeking to connect the Academy to potential donors. The American Academy, as I understand it, is 100% privately funded. Correct. And so a lot has to be done to earn support for the Academy. So what, what do, do you- I do? <laughs> <laughs> yep, you got it. What exactly do you do to raise money for this august institution? So one aspect is the relationship maintenance with existing donors, which is daily work. Phone calls, emails, updating about academy programming, inviting to academy events. Um, in addition to that, um, new donors have to be identified, especially when um, revenue targets in the beginning of each year increase. Uh, so the normal process is um, we come together, agree on a certain amount of money that we plan to raise. And this usually consists of a part of monies that are already identified and a part of monies that where new donors have to be identified for. Um, and then my team and I, we start the research. And this uh, involves researching companies, foundations, private individuals who could be interested uh, in what the American Academy does. Then discussing each one of them and detailing a plan of how to approach them. Most of the American Academy's fundraising is indeed done by travel and personal contacts. Um, there is once a year an initiative that we call the annual giving mailing, and this is a traditional fundraising tool, sending out uh, thousands of letters or emails to people who know the Academy, who've attended events and asked them for donations. But the, the ballpark of the money um, comes in via personal meetings and individual approaches. And these approaches uh, then, of course, also really point out how, uh, how, how a donor is integrated in the academy's work and life and sort of becoming part of the family. So I have the sense that like when you go out and you meet these people... And you're, you know, sitting in the boardroom or you're sitting across the desk from someone, you're sitting in the coffee house and you're trying to get their support. And we should say that you're trying to get their support because you firmly believe in the mission of the Academy. Like what you do is, as I see it, very earnest. Like the Academy doesn't run on love and good vibes alone, right? Like it, mm -hmm. it needs funding. You believe in the mission and you're sitting with people and you're trying to achieve their support. And in order to do that, you have to really develop true partnerships, something that almost borders on friendship. I mean, it's not quite friendship, but it's truly a partnership. How do you do that thing where like you create a connection with someone that transcends the mere financial transaction and it pivots towards partnership? with donors. And I think this is exactly key. You, 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 you basically answered it. The transcendence of financial relationships, that is, that is absolutely key. And this is how the Academy sees its donors. It's not, they are not um, the money transferring entities. They are friends and partners. 
I thought in the beginning when I started fundraising work that this is extremely difficult. And of course, it is difficult to raise money and simply simply because of the amount of people one has to see, the amount of money one has to raise. That's uh, certainly, it's, it's not easy. Money raising um, doesn't become easy uh, and, and became more difficult during the pandemic. Um, I don't want to say that it's, it's uh, that the money is just, you know, lying on the streets. That's, that's certainly not true. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, convincing someone about the academy and about what the academy does is in so far not so difficult because I'm not acting. I'm convinced about what the academy does. I'm totally convinced in this aspect of knowledge creation and, and, and quality of research. And in the end, what the academy does, I know the academy is a transatlantic institution, but if we look at the overarching story of the American Academy, the humanities, social sciences, political science, people from the political practical work, artists, in the, in the end, all of that comes together. And in the end, the questions that are being asked concern the future of how we want to live together, what defines humanity, what defines a good life. And this is of interest to everyone. And I think I, I firmly believe that these are the key questions that we have to raise and, um, and that are also relevant, of course, for, for our donors. Our donors are exactly because they are not simply the money transferring entity, but exactly because they are also part of our society. And this is something that we, I think, convey in our fundraising conversations and um, where we don't really have... To so much difficulties in, in conveying this. It's most of the time the fundraising conversations are pretty reasonable conversations. <laughs> yeah. Barrett, I have to say, I really adore your response. And in full disclosure, uh, I got a little emotional hearing you speak about it in that way, um, especially in our times when, you know, anti-intellectualism is on the rise and the humanities are under assault it was just so invigorating to hear you speak with such heart about it. So uh, thank you for that. I, I have to ask, though, um, is it fun? <laughs> I'm sorry if that's a really like, on-the-nose <laughs> question, but like, is it fun to go out there and to try to raise funds for this institution that you believe so firmly in oh totally it's totally fun i mean you could you know i mean you meet people that you would otherwise really not meet i mean from uh, the whole spectrum and it's this is totally fun i mean i i need my i need solitude but still it's uh, it's it's huge fun to go out there and and meet other people oh yes absolutely and you you enter worlds that uh, that you wouldn't even believe they existed <laughs> in, the, in the most positive way. I'm saying this really in, in a very positive way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose your sense of humor will get you through a lot of it, right? So you have these dual roles that you juggle at the academy, right? You have the program side and then the development or the fundraising side. We didn't get into it, but you're, you also yourself are an academic and you have a robust academic life, a robust social life, and you need to create some time for yourself. Although when I learn about you, I don't know where this time for yourself possibly comes in, but I'll trust that it exists. <laughs> you seem so extraordinarily busy. Um, I get the sense that you love your job. 
I totally love my job. And um, one essential factor in being able to navigate between my job at the academy and my, my academic life is, and this is very a very rational answer now, is time management. I'm, I'm very, very strict in that regard. My week is, is, is mostly for the academy and on the, on the weekends I'm, I'm very strictly uh, time managing myself. Um, there is certainly one day that uh, totally goes into, into my academic work, but also there are um, like, uh, you know, meeting friends. Um, going, I, I like to go to the opera concerts. And, and it's important that this is part of my life. And this is also, and that, that this is both part of um, the life at the American Academy, but also at the academic side of things, because would I get inspiration from? It's a job that is out there in the world, so it also has to be inspired from outside. Probably I don't necessarily see it so strictly divided between private and professional life. They all interact, and that's, um, and that's also what makes the job not necessarily a job in a strict sense. You know, there is not this, oh, God, I have to go to work again. Um, <laughs> it's uh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds like that. But on the other hand... There must be some days where you're like, oh, God, I got to go to work again. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and what is it that precipitates that? Like, what's the biggest grind of the work? What's the part of the job where you're like, oh, it's, it's going to be one of those days? Um, well, you mentioned that the Academy is privately funded and that we have to raise a certain amount of money and uh, especially when we uh, come to the end of each financial year and we see it, there is a certain risk that we might not meet our revenue target then I don't want to say that I do not want to go to work uh, but I sometimes <laughs> because that would be devastating if I did that at that point <laughs> but um, <Yeah. laughs> I wouldn't really solve the problem <laughs> Um, but that's where I think, oh God, you know, um, why is there not the situation where money is lying in the street? And then uh, just, you know, ru- running after that, making sure that everything comes in last minute, um, that's challenging. Yeah. Well, we're coming up towards the end of the year, so I, I wish you... <laughs> I wish you good luck with all that. Oh, uh, yeah, the Academy has an academic financial year, so I still have um, <laughs> until uh, June 30th. <laughs> so at the moment, no no worries. <laughs> totally cool. Yeah, then you can keep it cool for a while. Good. Hey, Barrett, you're clearly a lifelong learner. You've been at the American Academy for 15 years or so, right? Yes, yeah, nearly 15 years. Yeah. What do you know now about developing a marketplace of ideas in this unique space that you didn't know, say, a decade ago? When I started at the Academy, and I am completely honest here with you, I had no idea what the Academy was about <laughs> at all. Um, I came into that building and I, I saw all these artworks hanging there in the living room and then uh, the artworks were explained to me and I thought, hmm, okay. And then they, they were suddenly talking about board of trustees. I thought, oh, great, what on earth is a board of trustees? I had no idea. <laughs> um, so 
Um, but of course, I had an idea or an, an imagination about a transatlantic relations. And in my generation, um, I'm in the end of my 30s, most of my friends grew up in some way or another in a transatlantic context and be it just by listening to the music. I mean, I was born in East Germany and grew up in the East, so it wasn't really familiar from the beginning. But um, after the unification, a transatlantic life was always part of our life. Um, and so when I started at the academy and after a week or so finally knew what it was about, I thought, well, you know, actually, why do they exist? Actually, um, this should work. And don't we all already have these connections? And I was quite astonished how much these day-to-day -day relationships that exist, how much there still can be done in all kinds of worlds. And how much also as a, as a factor perhaps of day-to-day -day life and of day-to-day -day routine, people go to work, go back home, have dinner, that's it. They're extremely, extremely busy in their jobs. And, and because of that, sometimes this exchange of ideas is not as vibrant, I want to say, as I had imagined when I started at the academy. Of course, I came right out of university where um, I was completely absorbed in the, in the academic world. But even, even the academic world, it's not that uh, transatlantic relations or even uh, international contacts are a given. They constantly have to be worked on. And uh, this is something that I definitely hadn't expected when I, when I started there. Well, you're totally right. It's decidedly not a given, mm -hmm. right? Creating these spaces takes daily interaction. It takes real hard work. It takes continued conversation. You know, so many of us, myself included at times, I must confess, probably take the transatlantic dialogue or dialogue, broadly speaking, for granted, right? And I just, I really respect what you and your team do to do the work to keep these dialogues vibrant and verdant and, and forward moving, right? Like the transatlantic discussion, it's not a thing, it's a process, right? Correct. And it's evolving over time. And I, for one, am really grateful that you and your team are so committed to this. As I said, I've been the beneficiary of the hard work of you and your team. And I just think it's, look, you know, the last few years have put a strain on transatlantic dialogue. And the last decade or so has put a lot of strain on the humanities and the social sciences broadly. I see you and I see the Academy as defenders of the values that I hold sacred. And, and I mean that, you know, I, not to like position you as some sort of culture warrior, mm -hmm. but there is, to say the very least, a debate going on. And I would even say a fight going on. And uh, boy, am I glad that you're on my side. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm glad that you were on my side. Thank you so much for, for this opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure. Hey, look, that should be enough, and that would be a wonderful place to drop off. But would you be willing to share the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure 
before we go, maybe start with the story of failure so that we could end appropriately so on the note of triumph? Okay. Um, yeah, failure, um, I think uh, that's uh, pretty straightforward. We spoke about the whole fundraising aspect before. Failure is certainly, you know, when you're at the end of the year and you haven't raised the revenue that you actually aim for. That happens. That's part of life. That's a failure that, that can happen. Um, a professional triumph, something that we developed a couple of years ago um, was a fellowship in the humanities. And I told you before that I firmly believe in the humanities and that they, they, they cannot be strong enough. Um, and the Academy, a couple of years ago, drafted a grant proposal for a big grant for a new fellowship in the humanities that would also come with a workshop. That workshop would last about a week, produce knowledge output, um, so really creating knowledge by firm discussions and also papers and so on. And this enabled the Academy to step on new terrain, explore new territory. We dealt with um, gender equality, we dealt with migration in the, in the broader sense about how the international migration uh, scheme would have to be adapted or changed. We dealt with sounds, the history of sounds. We dealt with mining in South Africa and mining in the, in the transatlantic world. I worked on that grant proposal and am now having the pleasure of carrying out the program. This was, this was certainly a moment of professional triumph when the money was raised and we, we could not do that. That sounds awesome. I, I bet it felt great. I bet it's going to continue to feel great. What you do is wicked important. And it's really heartening to me to learn that you love it, that there's real joy in it. Bert Ebert, thank you so much for joining me on Studs. This has been a true pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you for having this great project, Studs. It was wonderful talking to you. Thanks. All right. That's Dr. Barrett Ebert. She's something special, right? So follow this show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you have the means to give a few, hop on over to patreon.com studs. Next week, we're going to have a special episode. I really want to tell you all about it, but I think I'm going to keep it under wraps. Tune in. Until then, please stay healthy. Please stay well. Please stay funky. And enjoy what remains of the autumn leaves.